Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we hear from Jill Abramson, lecturer at Harvard and former executive editor of the New York Times. In a wide-ranging talk, Abramson discussed the 2016 election and its coverage in the media, both problematic and promising. Abramson shared her thoughts on how news organizations can improve their coverage of the election, which media outlets are currently producing the best campaign reporting, and how the media is increasingly disconnected from the concerns of the average voter. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. And we're just delighted uh, to have Jill Abramson uh, with us today. from the New York Times, formerly, uh, first woman to be the Washington Bureau Chief, uh, managing editor, executive editor, uh, and before that, uh, a considerable stint at the Wall Street Journal, uh, where she was the Deputy Washington Bureau Chief. Uh, Jill is currently a visiting lecturer in Harvard's English Department. Welcome, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, you know, here we are in the heat of the primaries and what can only be described as kind of a crazy, topsy-turvy political terrain, uh, which hasn't even begun to gather steam, which is a frightening thought in many ways. Uh, I am, I've covered politics uh, going back to uh, 1976, uh, I, I actually covered the lesser candidates in the Democratic New Hampshire primary. Uh, in fact, none of that, they, they probably won't ring bells with too many of you. I covered Sarge Shriver and Fred Harris, who, and I had a really early night uh, really early, and uh, I went. the 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 hangout for you know the famous boys on the bus was the bar at a hotel that was torn down just last year called the Sheraton Wayfarer. And as the night went on, you know, all of the lions of journalism were at the bar, uh, and there wasn't a woman among them. Uh, but, you know, and I didn't have the guts to do anything but stand sort of behind a wall and gaze at them. And, you know, it, you know, I felt I couldn't even dream of ever being a political reporter. But, you know, luckily my dream came true. Uh, I've been a political junkie since I was an undergraduate here uh, and supervised political coverage both at the Journal uh, and at the Times for a very long time, from when I was bureau chief to when uh, I was fired at the Times as executive editor, uh, and loved doing it, but loved doing it with the approach that the Wall Street Journal really taught me, which was not to focus on up to the second breaking news and little developments inside the campaign that were really for an audience of insiders, but 
to really go out and understand yourself by listening to people, you know, what the election was really about. And my background became as a political investigative reporter. My specialty was money and politics. And I've actually come here quite a few times to, to talk about that. But, you know, I also, you know, learned that the financial background of presidential candidates and really all politicians in Washington, that no matter what you looked into, you were going to find a story, whether it was the money that um, constituents, wealthy constituents loan to members of Congress, which I found just going through financial disclosures to, you know, I, at the, at the journal in 96, broke the stories about offshore Chinese money that was flowing into illegally into the Democratic National Committee. So, you know, I really think vis-a-vis -vis this election, it's crucial that, you know, the, the, the financial background beyond just the Clinton Foundation uh, be looked at because it shouldn't have been such a surprise to the rest of the media that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have emerged uh, so forcefully and are very much in contention for the nominations of their parties. Uh, you know, I heard that you know the Times and some of the other, some of the broadcast networks didn't have a full-time reporter assigned to Trump until pretty recently, uh, which is, is shocking. I think, by and large, the established media was pretty slow to not dismiss him, uh, whether it was the Huffington Post deciding to put him in the entertainment category to, you know, really the, 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 very, the most experienced news organizations like the Times. The Times was, was slow too. And with, with Sanders, I, I, I had a terrible time. I, the course I teach is a, a seminar called Introduction to Journalism in the English Department, and very focused on reading and improving writing. And so for Monday's class, it's all politics. It's all political profiles and ones that are quite deep. And I have to tell you, I had a hell of a time finding a really good Trump profile, as big a celebrity as he is. Uh, I couldn't find the kind of piece, let's say, that um, Jeff Tubin wrote in The New Yorker about Ted Cruz uh, and his, his legal background. Uh, and finally, after doing quite a bit of calling around to my friends in the political press corps, they told me to look at the Washington Post is doing what I think is a very smart piece in the spirit of investigation and enterprise journalism that I prize so much. And it's 
taking a decision that each of the candidates have made and going deep on that one decision and trying to figure out what makes them tick and how they make decisions because that's the most important thing the president does. And so the, the Post is doing a series on that. And they actually did a quite interesting long piece about how Donald Trump decided to do The Apprentice to go on that show. And it's very revelatory. You should all read it. It's about how, basically it captures how impulsive and off the cuff he is. Uh, it, it's, it's a good read. So I found my Trump piece, but you know, I'm still searching for something that really in one place gives you what you need to know about Bernie Sanders. Uh, if you can think of something here, Bring it my way. I still have time before Monday. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I am not someone who is that, you know, I, I have to admit the, the campaign is so exciting now that I am following it on Twitter. But I've never been either an editor or reporter who felt like I had to be in the instant. What I've always tried to do is follow the instant news incredibly closely and then find what I call the story behind the story, to dig into some aspect of it, like who made this happen? Like what was the maneuvering that happened before a political development uh, broke in the news? But you know, I'm, I'm definitely on Twitter at least three times a day. And, you know, I guess on the, the bright side, because uh, I don't want, you know, I'm certainly not saying there isn't quality political journalism. There's probably too much of it, just not exactly the kinds of pieces that I was just talking about. You know, I think some of the digital natives like BuzzFeed, um, do a great job. They're, you know, on it 24/7. They are instantaneous. They usually break the political political scoops they have on Twitter. They don't even care whether it's on their website particularly. All they care about is they they want to have as it lives up to its name. They want to have buzzy scoops that go viral, that get huge audiences, because that is their business model. But they they have some great reporters, and actually one of the best pieces about Hillary Clinton's inner self was written by a young reporter there named Ruby Kramer, who, coming full circle, uh, she is the daughter of an author named Richard Ben Kramer, who wrote one of my favorite political books, What It Takes, that went so deeply into who are these people as people, uh, writing, I think, about the 1988 campaign so long ago now. But BuzzFeed isn't just covering the moment. They have a 14 person investigative unit um, with editors and reporters that's actually bigger than what I had at my disposal as managing an executive editor of the Times. And they're, 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 they're going places uh, that others don't. Uh, I'd cite Vice, not so much for politics, but 
They also do 60, you know, they do a more modern version with younger correspondents of 60 minutes, and they go, they literally go to places that no one else goes, uh, whether it's Antarctica or, you know, a labor camp deep in China. Uh, so, you know, I'm an optimist about journalism. I just am frustrated because I think accountability journalism that holds the government accountable is what why the Constitution made the First Amendment first. And we're, journalists, you know, are very protect have a very protected place in our society and giving the highest quality information to the voters is the most important thing we do every four years. So I would just like to see this deeper layer uh, take hold. And you know, the, the problem with why there isn't more of it is that, you know, newsrooms have been cut and no, nobody wants to get beaten on the day story, so reporters don't have the time to do the kinds of pieces that I love. And things like investigative reporting are the most expensive kinds of reporting. So I think I'll oh, stop good. with that. Good, um, thank you, Jill. Uh, so before I open it up for questions, I, I can't avoid the chance to get a tip, right? So what uh, could a center like the Shorenstein Center do post-election uh, to contribute to better campaign coverage the next time around? Well, you know, I have to say that, that the Institute of Politics does like what I, I would battle to be able to come. Uh, what used to be called, I don't know if it still is, maybe Maggie can correct me, the Campaign Managers uh, Conference where all of the major figures uh, in both the Republican and Democratic uh, presidential campaigns come to Harvard. Um, they come right here, and they, they're really candid about what they did wrong, you know, their strategies for certain turning points in the campaign. So, you know, I think there couldn't be sort of more of that post-analysis, and I think where the, 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 the Shorenstein Center could come in is I think the question that I pose for this talk is only going to become more compelling, and I detect a real feeling of press failure uh, in this election cycle. And who but you would be, you know, perfectly positioned to look at that and why it happened. And I know you had someone, you know, you had the Washington bureau chief from CNN here yesterday, but why when I turn on CNN isn't there on the ground footage, more talking to voters rather than just another set of people arguing. Uh, so we can do better. Okay. So let's open it up uh, again. Students first, and if you could uh, please identify yourself uh, before you ask your question. And please don't be shy. <laughs> Shyness is usually not a problem, although it seems to be a problem at the moment here. So. <clears throat> Hi, uh, my name is Cornelia, and I'm an MPP student My here. daughter's name is Cornelia. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh, I never made any other ones. Um, thanks so much for your comments. I'm thrilled that you're here, and I'm an avid you know, 
print subscriber of the Times, and um, I wanted to ask you about, as an undergraduate, I did a study of uh, the reporting of the 08 primaries um, between Clinton and Obama, because I was looking for if there was any kind of bias in the reporting of just straight news articles, not news analysis pieces, mm -hmm. but like just reporting. Who won the investigative pieces too? No, just, just sort news. of next day reporting uh -huh. on like who won the primary. And looking at um, phrases like, or you know, this person won, but this person won, the, uh, this other person won these demographic groups, or this person won, but the other person still has the momentum. And I'm wondering, as editor, how did you think about um, the decisions around like what information to put in just straight reporting, you know, objective news sources reporting kind of what happened and you know, knowing that whatever uh, you know, demographic results or anything might influence the way voters are thinking about the results, you know, um, in terms of momentum and who might be kind of still on top. That makes sense. Thank you. Sure. Well a constant problem in editing, either, you know, a lot of the polit political coverage came out of the Washington Bureau or from the political desk in New York. I, the, the most frequent thing I found myself doing is the horse race was always at the top of the story and anything about policy or, you know, voters or, even just explaining the places where the, the primaries were happening and the, the candidates were going was always too low. And you know, there was kind of punditry at the, the top of the day news story often. So you know, I would often ask for things to be flipped around. Uh, in terms of demographics, uh, you know, I was lucky at the times in that, you know, we have a tremendous bank of data uh, geniuses who study every aspect of the electorate, a polling unit. I mean, that's unheard of at most places, have stripped that away. Yeah. And in 08, I had Nate Silver, <laughs> and and you know, I, if I was confused on any of the point, very smart points you raised, I could go talk to him. Please, we'll, we'll get you both. So, <laughs> um, hi, my name is Sean Moore. Um, could you please comment on the line between uh, objective reporting and opinion that we're now seeing in some new media organizations, maybe like Vox, um, which has more analysis, mm -hmm. and where that's taking journalism? Right. I mean, the, the line between analysis and opinion is a somewhat fuzzy one. Uh, you know, it, it, there isn't like a clear, bright, line. Uh, and, you know, what I would say is I don't view objectivity as, on one hand, on the other, uh, presentation of stories and giving equal weight to everything. Uh, and I don't really believe in pure objectivity as a personal trait of the journalists covering stories. What I think is critically important is that every journalist go into a story with their mind 
genuinely not made, made up and with the capacity to be surprised and even change your mind. That's what's important. In terms of the finished product, uh, I think you follow, a, a good reporter does enough reporting always that the weight of evidence, like one, you know, in a, a, a just day political story, you know, if a crowd for one candidate is hundreds of people more than from another, you know, you get the weight of sort of, if you, again, if you do enough reporting, and that's the key to what, how the flow of the campaign is going. We're, you know, it's report, 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 and gather evidence. Uh, and under tremendous deadline pressures, a lot of political reporters, thank God, do that. Uh, I'm Ellie Gillerman, I'm an MP student here. Um, I wanted to ask you about, about polling, um, so good transition from that question to the previous one. Um, there's been some criticism and to some extent this happens every cycle of reporters that just report polls without commentary on the quality of the polls. Yeah. So that, not operated equal. Um, so what is it that you think prevents reporters from getting into that discussion of granularity? And is it possible to, you know, offer that commentary in a more nuanced way that recognizes, you know, better polls versus I mean there are some polls that are completely discounted at both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Uh, and, you know, I was just at UVA talking to Larry Sabato, who's a great expert on polling, and he thinks there are even more that should be just not even in, like, Nate Silver's 538s, you know, list of polls that he... Uh, he draws his overall conclusions from uh, why you know why journalists I think aren't savvy enough about which polls to pay attention to is I think their level of knowledge about polling isn't deep enough and you know they are hungry to have the latest anything uh, in this 24/7 new news cycle that that the internet has blessed us with, and I really be believe it has. Uh, so hearing of a new poll that shows something surprising or different is like honey to bees. It just, uh, it just is. Uh, and you know, when I br you know brought Nate Silver to the Times, it caused a lot of controversy within the, the journalistic, uh, the, the political journalism group at the Times because they felt some, even some of his polls weren't ones they considered go to the bank with. Uh, so I think it, it's, it's one lack of knowledge and fueled uh, why journalists use polls they shouldn't pay attention to. It's part of the domination of horse race reporting on a daily, now a minute-by-minute -minute basis, which I also think is regrettable, but that fuels the hunger for poll data. So the floor is open to anybody, so... Um, Tim, that's fine, thank you. 
Hi, my name is Rebecca. I'm doing a master's um, at the graduate school and I covered the British election in May 2015. I'm just wondering, do you think in your experience is this election abnormal? And if so, Out, excuse abnormal. Me. Do you think that this is the American election this year is abnormal in the history of experience of covering news coverage. Is the election abnormal? Yeah, <coughs> um, yeah I'd say so. <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm constantly, because I, I am a, a student of political history, uh, there are, even though it's different, you know, there, there, history, you know, can be a guide on a, a lot of this. I mean, in some ways, the Sanders campaign reminds me of the Eugene McCarthy anti-Vietnam War campaign in 1968, which excited so many young people. Uh, you know, I, I, Donald Trump, you know, the f this is sort of sacrilegious to say, I don't mean at all to demean President Reagan, but the idea of having, you know, the talents of an entertainer are not so different from the talents of, uh, of a politician. And even more than that, they have immense, they tend, to, many of them tend to have immense egos. So, you know, what seems shockingly new this time you know, it may, makes, do, does make sense to me in some ways. Uh, and I'd just like to add, um, you know, what I'm trying to do in my column for the, the Guardian is explain all this to a more international audience, which is, has been a challenge and a fun one. Hi, my name is John Gibbs. I'm an MPA student here at Harvard Kennedy School. My question is related to one that was asked a little while ago, but it's about this idea of polarization. So you have the rise of Fox News on one side, you have MSNBC perhaps on the other side, then you have news sites like Breitbart, which is very right. popular on the right. So it seems like it's becoming increasingly easy for people to receive only information that matches what they already thought in the first place. And so how do you see that? Well, first of all, is that a good or a bad thing? And secondly, how does that impact investigative journalism? John, that is a terrific question. And first, I would, uh, have you looked at Jackie Combs, uh, who was a fellow at the Shorenstein Center, wrote a really interesting paper about, it was mainly radio, but right wing, you know, the right wing press. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think that only getting your news from sources with, with whom you agree is a negative trend. And, and I, I think not only that, it's sort of that that's an obvious uh, worry, but perhaps a more subtle one is the influence of Facebook. Facebook is by far the biggest <laughs> distributor of news, including political news. They are essentially the biggest publisher in the world uh, with an audience of three billion people a day. And, you know, it's wonderful as a vehicle to connect people, uh, you know, and, and I think Facebook does many terrific things. But I also think if basically you're getting news and only sharing news with your Facebook friends, that that 
may also feed into polarization because sometimes your friends think like you do. Uh, and, you know, I, I can't help myself, but I've like watched a lot of Fox News. I watch it when I go to the Mac here. Uh, and, you know, they, they for me, it's very interesting to know like what the theme of the day is on the right. Uh, they sometimes have more on the actual footage where you see the candidates at an event, I think, than at least when I turn on CNN, although I have hardly studied this. Uh, but of, of course, that trend feeds the polarization. Uh, but an interesting footnote is um, Breitbart, which does seem to be one of the cool sites of 2016. Uh, Breitbart himself was one of the original founders of the Huffington Post. <laughs> I wanted to follow up on the, the Facebook question. So, and, and your initial uh, in your initial remarks, you uh, lamented kind of the, the decreasing of accountability journalism. And, you know, every journalist that I know, you and many others, all of them actually have a strong journalistic ethos of accountability. Part of the central functions of the press is to hold government accountable and thereby improve democracy. A couple of years ago, I was talking to some um, very top managers at Facebook, and I said, you know, a lot of people say your algorithm creates this kind of polarized uh, news sphere, if you could make a tweak to your algorithm that you are 100% sure would improve the quality of American democracy, whatever that means to you, would you do it? And they said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> we get all kinds of people, you know, we get the, you know, the gun control people, mm -hmm. the pro-gun people, the anti-gun people, the enviros, lots of people trying to make, want us to tweak our algorithm, and it is what it is. We can't respond to any particular, so that is the absence of, well, it is a particular ethos. It's just not an accountability journalism ethos. Well, what yeah. should the ethos of the new media be? Well, I, you know, I think Facebook would say it's not part of the media, uh, which is, you know, something that I'm not sure right now it is true because of their distribution role. Uh, but you know, they, they don't in, enjoy exactly the same First Amendment protections that journalists do. And their role in society is, you know, I, you know, I've taught to Sheryl Sandberg frequently, is to connect people and to open up new channels of communication, not only news. And so I sort of understand where they're coming from. And, you know, I... I I think their role in our society isn't quite what the role of journalism is, and that we can't expect it always to be. But many of the issues that come before Facebook now are the, the same ones that, that we do. And as we know, you know, terrorism has gone online. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that journalism could play a very interesting and positive role helping guide places like Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat 
through the way we think through and do a balancing test for what information absolutely needs to go before the public and what sensitive or classified things are not crucial for the public to know. Uh, and as I guess I'm doing all kinds of silly footnotes, but I actually met Mr. Algorithm when I went out to <laughs> Facebook. Uh, and he uh, is 28 years old. <laughs> Chris, please. Hi, Hi. Um, A comment and then a question. Um, I was hoping personally, 10 years ago when I was a Shorenstein Fellow, we were doing a lot of hand-wringing and we were using the phrases old media and new media. So I'm just asking for a potential ban on those two phrases, mm -hmm. taking the it's old and the new, media. and adding some qualifiers like news media or, as you're using the word journalism, um, because it's a pretty big mix in the media. Um, my question was about um, the old problem of getting substantive coverage during the presidential campaign on issues like education or let's say climate change with the particular problem of the Republicans as exemplified in the Republican debates of having extreme views on climate change, stating them, um, they're not challenged in that environment. That, it, that kills me. And so what would you, I mean, as a junkie, fellow junkie, the debates you know, are eye-opening and head-turning, but and that, a, somewhat in a grim way entertaining. <laughs> but what what would you say about bringing this critical eye to the fact that when you're covering people with views that are not uh, central views, or the New York Times would not be uh, having the climate denial views, how would you suggest covering it? Because Fact check doesn't quite work. Uh, the debate. Fact check is time consuming. And so the debates are kind of real time and it's hard to catch up. But nonetheless, on the campaign trail, the top three uh, candidates for the Republican nomination are extreme and also climate change deniers. So, how do you cover important issues when, you know, black is not white and, you know, there's no gray? It's Chris, that's, a, that's also a, a great and big question. I think it relates somewhat to the one I was asked earlier about objectivity. Because I think if a reporter has gone deep and is knowledgeable that when something is wrong, you can say it's, it's wrong or a lie. There, there are no journalistic rules. Nothing in the Washington Post uh, or AP style books say you can't do that, but you have to do it with real authority based on reporting and reading deeply about the issues. Uh, and, you know, I think we, we shouldn't get too discouraged because we're at the very beginning. And so, and you know, there is you know a topsy-turvy open race on both sides. So I think the lack of deepness on issues will come in the general election for sure. It's too bad 
that right now the voters in primaries or the people who go to caucuses don't have access to, to that. But I think not always, but that some of the moderators of the debate have done a good job of challenging the candidates. But it's unfortunate that the candidates uh, have learned too well the trick, don't answer the question, answer the question you wished had been asked. <laughs> Looking over to <clears throat> in the back, please, Arthur. Arthur Applebaum, my teacher. Um, so my my question is a compliment to uh, Archons. So uh, imagine the the top ten or twenty news sources, and uh, they could be newspapers or cable shows or networks or or internet sources. And now imagine what one of them can unilaterally do. One of them acting unilaterally in a change of organization or change in policy that would, one, uh, significantly increase the quality of political reporting, and two, not be suicidal and put them out of business. What, what could one large organization unilaterally do? It, I mean, it's hard for any kind of news organization to be unilateral uh, because, you know, sort of the influencers within journalism, you know, that whole notion has become so diffuse uh, that, you know, I sort of can't imagine. I mean, there wasn't even ever an agreement within the media of whether to call torture, torture. Uh, and I think what I would do is, you know, what I was saying just a, a minute ago, I would want, you know, re re real reporters to be somewhat freer to say that something is extreme and then not only say it but show it through your knowledge of someone's record. Uh, so, you know, that, I, that would be my wish. I don't know whether I could make it unilateral in, in, in any way. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Dan Kennedy, I'm a Schoenstein Fellow. Um, I was wondering to what extent you have followed the um, the resurrection of the Washington Post on oh, the Bezos, and uh, what this what you think this means for their traditional competition with the Times. Well, so far, I think it has meant good things for the Washington Post. I certainly have not seen any uh, slackening or diminution in the Times' news report, but the, t the Times, and I enjoyed the most of all, uh, you know, we felt that we had pulled ahead to the point, pulled ahead of the Washington Post to the point that we were in a class by our own. Uh, and the Post, sadly, I mean, competition is so good for any news organization that we were sad, too. And, uh, you know, but the Post had a thousand journalists in its newsroom, like, uh, less than a decade ago. And it now has six, 600, it has, at its low point after the cuts, which 
almost killed Don Graham, who is the most decent and committed kind of owner of the Washington Post. Uh, you know, you, you just can't really compete. They were forced to close all of their national news bureaus. They closed a number of foreign outposts. You know, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, they also made some strategic mistakes, uh, and I, I won't go into them here. But, you know, I, I just, I went, they had the ribbon cutting on their new building in late January, and I, I, I went the next morning. You know, they had, they had other events, and that's when I went. And I, I Be Bezos was there. You know, it was very interesting because I'd heard, you know, he, and in his announcement, he intended to be very hands-off and not be in the newsroom a lot. And I think he seemed very emotionally tied to the post. And I have to think he'd just come back, you know, he flew in his private plane to Germany to bring home the post reporter who had been imprisoned in Iran and his, his family. And at the ribbon cutting, he had walked out with both the reporter, his wife, and his mother, which had, you know, really, you know, had a great effect on everyone in, at the post. Uh, but, you know, he, he it seemed most of the, the journalists, even what I'd call the old school ones, uh, they like the, you know, he's, he's given them resources and hired, I think, 100 technologists, and the technologists sit right with the reporters, which I think is exactly right. I love their new app, uh, which, like, loads in, a, in literally, I think, a nanosecond. And, you know, I, I think they are totally back in the game. And I, I can, can t tell you for fact that the, the morale there is much, much better. A lot of the credit for that goes to Marty Barron, who's a sensational editor. Uh, but um, it's, you know, an, it, it's like a new, an old-fashioned newspaper war, but digitally, which is, it is great, great to see, yeah. Hi, I'm Harry Shearer. I'm a recent uh, Victoria grad. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, your talk today was, the, was supposed to be a little bit about uh, better quality. No, it's a question. Is there enough of that? All right. So, there, how would you, how do you address the fact that some of the candidates running for president, and I don't want it to be too partisan, but a lot of them happen to be on the Republican side. <laughs> just make statements that are absolutely blatantly untrue. As Senator Rubio, it's been eight years since the Supreme Court candidate has been nominated. In right. Trump, Trump, many of Trump's statements where people have said, you said this 10 years ago. You said he that. says, I did. And, 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 and we did. And so <laughs> where's the press to kind of call some of these people on these statements that are blatantly untrue? I kind of think I've answered yeah. that. Yeah. So, sorry. Michael, yeah. Just, I just wanted to go back to when you started back in the 70s, that, that initial story of being that, that hotel and being you know, someone who 
wasn't, uh, you know, couldn't dream of being there, and then of course you were there. My, my question is about um, the antagonism towards the press in your experience over 40 years. Whether there's always been an antagonistic relationship between politicians and the press, and there should be. Not like now. But that's, that's where my question is going. Do you observe something structurally new in the last 10, 15 years on either side of the aisle? which makes it rewarding for politicians to run against the press. I mean, not merely the liberal media, but both sides are playing this run against the media. And, and I'm just wondering whether you could explain it, whether how it's changed over the last, uh, over your time uh, covering. Sorry, let's keep going on. That's all right. Uh, I, I'm just dwelling on your the part of your question that asks whether it's structural. Uh, you know, I think it, so. I, I'm going to hold that in my my head for a minute and and come back to it. But you know, the the, the level of anger in this election, both among voters, among the candidates, sparring with each other is definitely you know much higher than than i've ever seen it and at this point i think the 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 press is still in i i hate to say polls but when pew which is a very reputable uh place you know i think journalists may rank lower than members of congress and you know the congress <laughs> is not held in high esteem these days uh, and 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 why is that i think a big reason is that while the you know journalists see as part of that constitutional role of holding power accountable uh, and we investigate things like Hillary Clinton's email that to the average person in this country I am telling you I have traveled quite a bit around the country I went to you know many many towns in New Hampshire no one is talking about Hillary Clinton's emails. It's just, the, it, the, especially in political reporting, a lot of what we, the media, focus on is just, it's, it doesn't touch people. It isn't part of their daily concerns. And uh, so, like many institutions in the country, I think the gulf between the citizenry and the press has become wider. In uh, one other, this is a much smaller structural thing, but you would not believe, you know, how when you're part of the traveling press corps now, you are literally like imprisoned. Uh, you know, I went to a Clinton event where like there's a big it looked like something from a rodeo like a heat <laughs> that you'd use on cows or bulls and you know it was this huge rope where they were like hurting us and you know we, you're much further away from the people who are at the event and I 
think at a recent Trump rally, they described some kind of chamber that sounded like an execution chamber with steel walls so that you couldn't even really see. So those are structural changes in the campaign that affect journalists that, you know, I think have contributed to the difficulty of providing the highest quality political journalism. Why are they doing it, though, Jill? That's my question. Why are they roping you off like steers and putting you in steel compartments? Why is that smart? Because they think that the journalism has become a gotcha culture and that all the people who cover them are interested in is some kind of foible or something like that. And, you know, the, there's no trust. I mean, I'm not saying in my career I've ever felt like a high degree of, 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 of trust, but, you know, I felt like when I gave my word about something that it, it was trusted and that that could provide a basis to talk in at least some honesty about things. Uh, and that, that trust is gone. Uh, it, ju it just is on both sides. On the left, Richard. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Suppressed the laughter. <laughs> you and I both started in journalism in 1976, and I founded Mother Jones with some other people in that year. What is the obligation, the moral obligation, both of the mainstream media and of the media that's not mainstream, should Donald Trump be elected president? What is the obligation, or what will their responsibility be if he is? What's the underlying moral obligation of an institution, as you said, protected by the Constitution? for a specific purpose in relationship to an administration which is being foreshadowed by the way he is behaving now? Well, you know, I think he will make it probably more difficult than ever to carry out the constitutional duties. I bet, I bet the, the White House press room is, you know, near the zoo if he, <laughs> excuse me, is elected. Uh, and the, the, the duty of the press, if he should become president, is to be, you know, at, as, as aggressive as it ever has been about fundamental truth testing, because it's absolutely a truth that he has told lies in the debates. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I never felt that Washington journalists who I worked with accepted a press release for the true version of events or, you know, followed the line being given out by an administration, but the duty to be even more skeptical than ever, I think, is there. And the responsibility right now is, you know, this, the, the topic of his bankruptcies, which he, he denies, uh, is very salient. But I still feel I don't, and his response is I just use the instrument of bankruptcy law as any smart business. But I want to deeply know about the, those specific instances, the deals 
what was going on? Was there no other way? Uh, and it, it just, the, it, the opportunity to pause, for a political reporter to pause and spend a week covering something and digging is not what it was, either when we started out or even in two, 2008. Uh, just the relentlessness of, of it doesn't allow for that. And I, I remember my, my frustration in 2004 when I was managing editor of the Times and the Swift Boat stuff came up against Kerry. And, you know, I couldn't believe that, A, that, the, that Kerry himself didn't have an investigative file that could disprove the vile ads that were run against him, but that no one in the, in the press had, you know, sort of, I assign, you know, a team right away. Uh, I don't think many others did. And it took us almost 10 days, which was frustrating because the controversy was burning and burning and held the public's attention much earlier than we could get to the bottom of everything. And finally we did, which is a public service. But the time factor and reporters not having enough of it is, 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 is an issue. Marilyn. I'm Marilyn Thompson, a Shorenstein fellow. Um, Jill, I'm, this is similar to Michael's question, but on a more, more personal level. Uh, being in a, a political investigative reporter today takes an enormous amount of courage uh, because you will find the reporter becoming the target of really vitriolic, a huge backlash uh, on backlash every social media site from both campaigns and some segments of the media. So I'm curious what advice you give to young journalists who would love to do this kind of work, but frankly aren't sure they have the the, the metal to do it. Right. Well, as an editor, the first thing you do is say, you know if your story is as solid as the Times would insist that it be in order to publish it, you say, I will have your back. The Times will have your back. Uh, that is one thing. And then, you know, I think it, it helped a number of investigative reporters at the Times to hear, you know, I, I have felt your pain. Uh, after Jane Mayer and I wrote uh, a book about Clarence Thomas's confirmation, which we spent three years reporting on. I mean, it it was pre-social media, but you know, they said we were les, you know, we were automatic lesbians. Uh, not that that you know, is a slur of any kind. You know, we had private, you know, even then Jane has had them on her case again, some investigators. We, you know, there was an active campaign to ruin us. And we appeared on the cover of the American Spectator magazine, a conservative magazine, as like these mean terrier dogs, and we had <laughs> Justice Thomas's robes in our mouths. So, you know, I I know how 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 it feels, uh, and 
in terms of the, the, the social media stuff, which can be way more vile than anything I'm talking about, I, I tell them don't read it. And I almost never do that because I think it's important for a journalism, a journalist to confront their critics and it's, it's healthy to be challenged. But this is personal vitriol that they really will not derive anything out of by looking at. So that's the personal stuff. So we have time to slip in one more question. It's always a disadvantage. I can't see your so face good. because of the light. Come on forward if you could. Not trying to not Not American, so that's okay. I'm Lal Sandy. I'm mid-career here at the Kennedy School. And Where are you from? Israel. So neither right nor left. The bipartisan issue. Uh, my question is tapping into public service and let's say, grassroots and road trips that you mentioned. What role do you see journalists have in bringing issues into the public eye? And if so, what are the issues you think that they should raise now during the campaign that people are less aware of and should resurface? Um, one for sure is the environment. Uh, you know, I'm surprised. There's been some, but relatively little. And that's one where the marriage of good reporting about what the candidates are saying and the grassroots, I think, merge beautifully. Uh, you know, all areas of science, really, I think, have become politicized and polarized. Uh, you know, in any, any subject that lends itself to existing polarization, I think, has to be, you know, prominent in the media just because correcting bad information is definitely one of the duties of journalism. Jill Everson, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.